For 90 plus minutes of gaming goodness, because DLC is your downloadable commentary for the week, delivered the way we love it to be. And that is completely free, thanks to our patrons over at patreon.com slash DLC pod. They bring the show to you, they support the show, they make sure we get to make these. And in exchange, they get some cool perks, including ad-free versions of the show video versions of the show on demand, and a whole host of other bonus content that is exclusive to supporters of the show, including Feeling This on Feeling This Fridays, where Christian Spicer and Alex Solman talk about the feelings behind video games, digging into all sorts of fascinating topics. You got two seasons of Feeling This just waiting for you when you become a patron at any level, plus you get the audio version of the DLC Book Club, where Lana Bashinsky and I talk about the Malazan Books of the Fallen. We're working through. We're on book three. The audio podcast version exclusive to patrons. But that's not all. At the Cool Ranch level of patron support, you get the paid DLC program, which is our Wednesday hump day show, where Lana Bashinsky joins Christian Spicer and myself for a wide-ranging, wacky, who knows, super serious, maybe a... Uh, Maybe it's about bodily fluids. I don't know. You never know. You tune in, you find out. It's exclusive for patrons over at patreon.com slash Pod. But this show, the main show, DLC, it's the show all about games and their many forms. Games played on desktops, laptops, and consoles. Also games that involve dice, luck, and cardboard. I'm your host, Jeff Kanata, that's spelled with two N's and one T. And I am joined, as always, by my friend slash co-host slash nemesis. The guy who's... uh always business casual, Mr. Christian Spicer. Hello, Christian. Am I here for business or am I here for casual? <laughs> well, my friend, I am here for business and casual. Does that work? Does that work with what you were saying, Jeff? Did I, sure, did I riff? Okay, good. I, you riffed. I don't want to let did you did it. You achieved riff. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we got a big show for you, ladies and gentlemen. We got tons to get into. Still talking about that Starfield. I mean, even an hour of Pure Starfield discussion last week is not enough. People talking about it, people playing it, people finally getting it into their hands on Game Pass, etc. We got lots to get into there and some really interesting news to get to. But the good news is we have an awesome guest to do it with. You know, the DLC always stands for your downloadable Kanata and your downloadable Christian. But this week, oh boy, I'm excited because DLC stands for Department of Leisure Coverage. Because that is something you might call a games beat. And from games beat, we have writer Rachel Kayser with us. Hey, Rachel, how are you? Hi, it's, I'm so happy to be here. We are so happy to have you. I enjoy reading your stuff over at games beat. You're doing such a great job. Thank you. Uh, and yeah, delighted to have you. As you can see, I am, this is strictly business here with the N7 <laughs> shirt. <laughs> right. 
Yes, thank you for for raising the bar a little bit, Mr. Casual over there. <laughs> I mean, we're talking about space stuff, and I don't have a Starfield shirt, so I know it's failing on my part, but this is as close <laughs> as it gets. Well, I'm supporting my 49ers today because they uh, they came out of the gate guns blazing with uh, uh, a beatdown of the of the Steelers and on the opening weekend of NFL. I'm excited. So I'm I'm uh, I guess I'm just full casual. <laughs> We're a spectrum casual. here. We're a Indeed. spectrum here on the show. Indeed. Uh, let's get into it and start the show the way we always do with story of the week. Story of the week. It's the story of the week. Story of the week. It's the story of the week. Story of the week is the part of the show where we make our case for the most important stories that happened in the world of games this week. You can always submit stories for our consideration by sending us an email to dlcfeedback at gmail.com. That's also where you can send us comments or questions or anything you'd like us to know. We love hearing from you. Send us an email, dlcfeedback at gmail.com. Or if you're so inclined, you can take part in one of our communities. We have other ways to reach out to us and find folks that also listen to the show uh, on the subreddit, which is 5x5dlc.reddit.com. Or our Discord, which is also 5x5DLC on Discord. Great people, great conversation. Check it out. But Rachel, you are our guest, so you get first pick of stories. What would you consider to be your story of the week? Well, I mean, we've got a lot of good contenders here, but if I'm speaking strictly from a business standpoint, which, you know, again, if I'm repping for business here, <laughs> um, I got to go with the story about the uh, the Switch successor the switch follow-up console being shown off to developers in behind closed door sessions at gamescom it's all very cloak and dagger but that's mm. how i like all my stories yes no they, uh, me too a little, little cloak and dagger uh, this is from multiple sources we got uh multiple people reporting on the fact that whatever the next version of a nintendo console is going to be uh, whether it's switch 2 or some other snazzy title that they come up with uh Whatever that is, the technology that is going to be built on is being shown. Uh, they are showing tech demos, evidently, to uh, various developers, uh, or they were at Gamescom. One of those tech demos is uh, one that we're very familiar with, uh, was released to the public, the Epic Games, the Unreal Engine 5 demo that came out on PlayStation 5, that Matrix Awakens, very, very uh, impressive visually, the you know, you you see the the photo real versions of Keanu, and and um, and you can walk around the city, and it just looks incredibly uh, high fidelity. Really showing off what the PlayStation Five was capable of. Evidently, folks were seeing that demo playing smoothly on a handheld system, uh, a a Switch like system. Uh, the rumors continue in the, to the fact that uh, this system will use NVIDIA's DLSS. We don't know which level of DLSS, but it will upscale uh, the visuals into 4K. And uh, Eurogamer actually mentioned that they were showing an improved high-res version of Breath of the Wild on this console. So, Rachel, what do you make of this? Is this finally the thing we've been predicting every single year for like the last four or five years that switch was going to have a successor uh, i mean you think this is a, on the horizon actually i mean we've been calling it the switch we started by calling it the switch pro right it was originally the switch pro and now it's sort of morphed into like the next thing in the switch life cycle in the in the nintendo console life cycle i do it's a little bit strange i mean not to focus on one small aspect of the story but it is a little strange that of the two 
most recent Zelda titles, it's Breath of the Wild that mm-hmm. they're showing at a higher frame rate and resolution. Maybe it's right. because that one's easier to upscale, but that's funny to me because that 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 game was originally released for the Wii U. Yeah, that's right. so that's they're like, going to sell us the updated version of first. That's why, you know, it's like <laughs> that's <laughs> that's the a good H- point. remaster. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, they got so many Zelda games that they need to make HD remasters of anyway. So, <laughs> but that's that is something to look forward to in the next console cycle. It's like here's upscale versions of all our older games. Yeah, it's like you yeah. could play them on the original cartridge. I I have heard that the Switch Two that is going to support Switch cartridges, which I hope is true. Because I'm I'm very big on game preservation and backwards compatibility, mm-hmm. and I that that's the one thing that would concern me is I, I I love the idea that we're going to have a more powerful Nintendo console, still perhaps a little bit behind the PS5 and the Xbox in terms of graphical power, but that's never been Nintendo's wheelhouse to begin with. So I love the but I love the idea of um of having a more powerful Switch, a more beautiful switch on which to play games especially if we're going to get something like a metroid prime 4 mm. um which i'm still holding out hope for still fingers crossed <laughs> but i mean because one of the things that i've noticed within the last year or so is a lot more talk about bringing third-party games to the nintendo consoles i mean that's been happening the entire switch life cycle but especially you know with the um with the activision blizzard acquisition and the uh, commitment to bring Call of Duty to the Switch consoles. Um, well, they didn't say the Switch; they just said Nintendo consoles, if right. I remember right. Very legalese there. I see what you're doing there, Microsoft. But they had that, and uh, there were other there were other games that they were talking about bringing to the Nintendo consoles. I'm thinking that's great, but do we downgrade the games to get them onto Nintendo consoles? But if we've got a more powerful Nintendo console, it's basically just getting them to PlayStation Five and Xbox Series S Series excess quality yeah uh, to get them onto the new nintendo console which i think so i think that would actually make it easier yeah i mean do you so the rumors point to this maybe even happening by the end of 2024 uh does that that seem uh, in line with what you might expect from where they're where they are now i mean that will put it at how many years about eight years i think after the switch's launch my math, my math ain't math. About seven yeah, years. Put me on the spot. Let's see what when the switch was uh, released. I can't quite remember what you. Oh, time is a flat circle. It was <laughs> yes. in the before times. I know that. Yeah, it was, it was like before the pandemic. I don't really remember anything that happened. Twenty seventeen, March third, twenty seventeen. So yeah. if it's announced, so if it's released before the end of twenty twenty four, yeah, that would put it at about a full seven and a half year console cycle, which yeah. that does sound about right. I mean, I love the Switch, and part of me thinks like the Switch is good enough to last for probably maybe another year of a, a year past that if you really add some really good games to it. Like if you get a, a Metroid Prime 4 or a Hollow Knight Silk Song or yeah. just any other games with some real juice, or I'm still holding out for Fire Emblem remakes, but I'm the <laughs> only one apparently. But yeah, I'm I think certain... seven and a half years is definitely a good console like, life, life length. Yes. Yeah, I am certain that Mario Wonder is going to do gangbusters when it's released. And the the install base for Switch is so massive. You bring up backwards compatibility, which I think when we were talking about it in the realm of Switch Pro Land, you know, where it was sort of an, an iterative upgrade on the Switch that just sort of added 4K, that felt like, oh, it was just going to be, you know, a plus one, all your library was going to push forward. Now that we're into this Switch 2 notion or whatever the next console is called, I think it is less a sure thing that all those things will be backwards compatible or 
forwards compatible, I guess is the more appropriate term because um, what I'm hoping, you know, when they talk about NVIDIA's DLSS technology and stuff like that, what I'm hoping is that there will be something akin to what Microsoft has done with, with Xbox generational upgrades where the, the system will automatically add some sharpening, add some, you know, up-res stuff. That would be wonderful to just plug the cartridge you already have into the new version of the console and it looks a little bit brighter, a little bit better, a little bit sharper. Um, certainly no evidence to that yet, but I'm, that's, that's what this news makes me hope for. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, especially when you consider like how many great games that perhaps have been held back by graphical uh, like limitations have been released on the Switch. I mean, yeah. just, just going with just staying in the realm of Legend of Zelda, Tears of the Kingdom. I mean, how fast were people cracking that to make that like PC quality? Right. Yeah, because it's it's a it's a PC quality game, I think, and not not to suggest that PC is the be all end all, but I'm just saying that that's as fast as that that was the um, platform that they brought it to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and I certainly you know as somebody that you know is not the biggest cheerleader for Tears of the Kingdom, one of the things it did feel to me that this hardware was not quite up to the task of running a game of that. Uh, level of ambition and hopefully you know this this will be the thing uh christian yeah. we i think we've lost count of the number of times we've predicted the next iteration of the switch being announced um do you think this it'll actually happen this time well i think nintendo wishes those doors were a little more well closed uh that they <laughs> That they showed this off behind. Yeah, behind closed doors, behind yeah. cracked doors. <laughs> the, the back door was wide open as they were showing this. It does feel it does feel right. As Rachel mentioned, this does feel like a normal console cycle length. I think because of COVID and the uncertainty of the world for so long. And I think where we still are with this console generation not feeling fully realized yet either with the playstation 5 and xbox series consoles there haven't been tons of that generation of console exclusive yet it feels like it maybe hasn't been that long that the switch has been out but it's been out a good long time i think since it came out people were like i sure would love a more powerful one <laughs> like almost yeah. from day one and nintendo's made hit after hit after hit on it but it does feel like the time is right for a new console to have that hype cycle. I do think backwards compatibility, backwards compatibility, excuse me, would be huge. And something that if you go back and read old Nintendo or stories about Nintendo when the NES was out and then the Super Nintendo came out, you know, there's like old 80s TV news reporter things of they call it the Super Nintendo. But what's not super about it is it doesn't play any of your Nintendo games. <laughs> like this idea that, you know, my, I, we have a Nintendo. Nintendo. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you ask your parents, we already have one. It's not, no, I, I want the new one. It doesn't play any of these. And so I, I do feel like there is legacy to the Switch that would go a long way for Nintendo to have that backwards compatibility continue for this generation but i also think they'll continue to expand on the nintendo switch online aspect of their back catalog i don't think that's going to go away my question and, and rachel i'm curious your thoughts on this is how you think nintendo might handle digital libraries because we've talked about oh it'd be great to put our carts in and that would be great but am i going to transfer my digital games over I, I hope so but nintendo's not 
always the best at that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, actually, I just uh, while you were talking, I just realized what game would be that I would love to see on the Switch successor because it was so held back by the Switch Switch's uh, hardware, Bayonetta three. Mm. So, like, I don't know if you guys know this about me, but I am like Bayonetta mega fan. Ah. Um, so, like, Bayonetta Christian's right favorite, there with you. My favorite yeah, game of all time fan. is Bayonetta, and actually, uh, here, Christian, one second. No, this yes, is please. This is going to. Like, I have Jennifer Hale's autograph ah. on a Bayonetta, and well, this is a Bayonetta three era Bayonetta, but yeah, yeah, that was definitely that would definitely be my case study for a game that was just way too big for the Switch, and like it was, it it felt like it was eating the Switch, honestly. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, digital libraries. The funny thing is, I actually felt of all things like the Wii U actually was an interesting case for how Nintendo managed that because not only did it did you could you play all of your Wii games but it even had an a backwards um it even had a library of games that you could access that weren't even available that that weren't even Wii U games like you could access GameCube games and I I'm, I just don't think Nintendo has a good track record with transferring digital games over and I feel that every time they've tried it has not been a feature that they've necessarily talked up nor has it been a feature that other people have really seemed to appreciate Mm. so i don't want to suggest it's our fault for sure because it's not but i don't think nintendo has necessarily been given the incentive but i do think covid might have changed that because i think they had such a boom in sales with the switch that a lot more people were buying things digitally because Mm. nobody wanted to leave the house So I think there are going to be a lot more people with bigger digital libraries on offer. So I think that is definitely, if they're smart and Nintendo is smart, that is definitely something they are going to have to consider. My biggest question with all of this, if we're talking, you know, when we were thinking of the next iteration of the Switch as this mid-cycle upgrade uh, akin to what they did with, you know, the DS and the 3DS and adding, you know, some hardware oomph uh, mid-cycle, but not really upending the the Apple cart. If we're now thinking of this as a full console generational move forward, as it appears, my biggest question is, is Nintendo now locked in this Switch form factor, this, this Switch template? Because one of the hallmarks of the Nintendo, you know, uh, generational up, uh, cycles historically has been that they try stuff that no one else is trying. You know, the Switch itself was that, and now we've got Steam Decks and ROG Allies and all kinds of stuff. Um, but, you know, even the Wii U was trying something weird. The Wii certainly was trying something weird. The GameCube tried something weird. They're always willing to make their next console functionally unique uh and and if are they now unable to do that are they victims of their own success here is the switch so ubiquitous and so uh associated with nintendo now in the sort of unification of the old ds handheld line and the home console the fact that they unified those into one single place are they now locked into creating basically the same thing over again without any kind of grand innovation what do you think, Rachel? I I think it's definitely something 
to consider there because that was kind of the deal like not to bring it back not to harangue the poor wii u but that was kind of the problem with the wii u it's like yes it innovated but did it really i mean when you compare it with the wii u which was such a huge leap in innovation for the company and you know for consoles in general and the wii u just wasn't it was not it was not a step backward but it was definitely not as big a step forward and i kind of get the feeling we're going to get the same technological like beat here it's going to be the same sort of patterns like the switch massive technical innovation just a hugely different thing than anything we've ever seen before in the industry i don't necessarily that's a that's a those are big shoes to feel fill for the next console and i think it's very telling that when they're talking about um the tech demos that developers were shown what they're talking about is power. Like mm-hmm. that's the big upgrade. They're not talking about any new I don't want to say gimmick, but I don't they they don't have a new innovation to use your word. They have they're they're talking about graphical power, uh right. processing power. And to me, that almost suggests that Nintendo kind of says, Okay, we've done all the big innovations. We've tried those. Maybe it's time that we do a little bit of the keeping up with the Joneses because that's what everyone has been complaining about with the Switch practically since it was released is that it's not a very powerful console. So I kind of wonder if maybe that's their innovation this time is like, hey, we're going to put out a genuinely powerful console. What do you think about that? That's interesting. I mean, it's certainly possible that whatever idea or innovation they're considering is behind actual closed doors. <laughs> uh, and certainly, no, we haven't actually possible. heard about. Right. But, you know, I, I'm inclined to believe that that the switch is so much it's so so clearly defined in consumers' heads. Uh, I don't know if they even have leave to to do something weird. Well, Christian, what do you make of this notion? Well, this isn't our prediction episode, so this is not a prediction. But what I do feel like the Nintendo has leeway with now, after successfully launching the Switch Lite alongside the regular Switch and then also an OLED Switch, is I think Nintendo perhaps has runway here to release this more powerful Switch that hits a price point that's important for Nintendo to hit. And part of the reason it hits that price point is because there's no dock associated with it. In the in the thing, you can buy a dock, you know, the way I have a dock for my analog pocket, or you can buy a dock for a Steam Deck. But I think they can squeeze more, uh, you know, performance under the hood of this handheld device. They don't claim it to be just strictly a handheld because you still can connect it to a TV. But I think they can decouple those two things and make a device that is just a handheld if that's all you want. And then you got to go spend an extra 80 bucks if you want to have their proprietary USB-C dock, take it somewhere else. And I, and I wonder if, you know, part of the, the magic to it would be something like battery life. You know, like it's, it's, I wonder if this all, is, but so, are, I wonder, none of those things are what I'm talking about. You I know, know I, mean? I know, but I wonder if this is, if this is the, the Apple approach where there's like, like AirPods, oh, they're just wireless headphones. Okay, they're not. Th- and then you kind of use it and you're like, ooh, that is pretty nice. Like if there's just something in it that just makes it feel nice and complete and, and it's like a continuation, but it's still better than dealing with well, but a, setting up a ROG ally. I think, you, I think you may be onto something and that's certainly cool, but it's not the kind of thing that propels the entire industry forward in the way Nintendo has before, you know, and for good or ill, you can argue that that's a completely different notion, but you know, motion control waggle for, you know, to use a pejorative 
uh, you know, a whole era was ushered in because they did it, right? The the sea stick on the old wave bird, you know, like changed the world. You know, the, 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 these things... And yes, the Wii U was ultimately a half step, but they were trying to do the second screen kind of thing that, you know, they were, they were just a little clumsy in its execution, but they really were pushing what the Switch became way earlier than anybody else. And I think it would be, there's a part of me, there's a part of me that like has sense and goes, I would just love a really powerful Switch. And then there's another part of me that goes, I think we lose something if Nintendo is not like doing those weird moonshots. You know, if, okay. if, if Nintendo isn't going, let we, we stick this one on our face, you know, or whatever it is, it's some weird thing that they try. And I think that if they're if they're playing it safer and more conservative, uh, I would be a little bit disappointed. I think they've done Game Boy to Game Boy Advance, they've done NES to Super NES, uh, GameCube you know, had a C stick, but dual analog, the Xbox also had a dual analog controller. The GameCube very much felt like a, we're going to compete with the, you know, the big dog style of console. We're going to have our Splinter Cell. We're going to have our Soul Calibur 2. And, and and so I think there's, you know, these eras of Nintendo that not every single thing needs to be a new, a new big swing. And I think if you, and I don't know if this will be the case, but I think if they have a handheld device that has ps5 level graphics or even arguably ps5 level graphics and the battery life puts the steam deck to shame or something you know there's something else there i think that's a pretty big generational leap in terms of where we are with video games now again yes could they come out with something truly transformative and different and and awesome again of course but i i also feel like you know i don't know if they need to i guess is maybe my retort i think maybe you already well, said never that, Jeff, needed but, to well uh, sometimes they, the gamecube didn't do great but the big swings have always been risky and i think that's what's fun about nintendo no one else does that anyway i'm beating a dead horse but i think it, it'll be interesting to see and sounds like from these reports uh everything's kind of revving up and raring to go in 2024 uh although uh one of the one of them we didn't mention one of the reports mentioned that it is uh and only an LCD screen, not an OLED screen, which I go, oh, because they're going to have the mid-cycle upgrade to the OLED like they did this time. <laughs> there you go. I assume that was probably a parts thing. Nah, from, maybe like, too. Maybe a leftover thing from COVID. I'm not sure. I always assume that any any hardware-related thing is still affected by COVID because yeah, from what <laughs> I've seen of the sales charts, the hardware sales, they're only just now recovering from the shortages that happened yeah. during COVID. Fair point. Yeah. All right, Christian Spicer, what is your story of the week? Um, it starts with techno, and then it yells out really loud, Mortal Kombat. But, like, with way more energy than I just said it. Like, you you hear the techno. I don't even need to say it, right? You hear the techno, yeah. and then you hear someone mm-hmm. yell, Mortal Kombat. See, that's me letting the audience do it for me. I don't need to fry these sensitive. You're, it's better if you don't cords. see the shark, you're they, saying. Yes, exactly. I just say techno, <laughs> and then Mortal Kombat. And you get it, dear listener. You get it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, some casting news, and we've seen some more gameplay. I, uh, two things that kind of came out. Megan Fox is joining the cast of Mortal Kombat 1, and also Mr. All-American Street Fighter himself, Guile, 
is going to be Johnny Cage. <laughs> and Mortal, we yeah, finally have our point. Mortal Kombat versus Street Fighter. It finally there happens all wrapped around Jean-Claude Van Damme. But I think Megan Fox in this, uh, if I do use the, dare I use the term stunt casting, is really interesting for me for Mortal Kombat. Because before, who'd they do last year? They've had, you know, uh, they brought back the actor versions of the uh, Terminator, Arnold Schwarzenegger as Terminator, and like that was an Arnold Schwarzenegger as uh, the T one thousand or whatever. No, that was Chris Cox. I no. think. Let me let me double check, but I'm pretty Arnold. sure that was an Arnie. I think it was, it's Arnold's likeness. Um, it is, yeah. And I think that wasn't his voice. They didn't. Sorry, didn't I interrupted record. you, Christian. Go ahead. Oh no, 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 no. I I would rather hear it now than in emails later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, it's Chris Cox doing the voice of. Uh, the Terminator, but his his but they Arnold's likeness. That yeah, that's definitely Arnie's face. Okay, so yeah, it's it's uh, you know uh, a little bit not all the way. And then they had uh, the professional wrestler do the voice of Sonya. Um, I'm blanking on her name right now. Ronda and, Rousey. And, and use her likeness, and and now they're kind of leaning into that a little more. But again, kind of threading that needle where Jean Claude Van Damme is like kind of like the wink and nod, and Megan Fox is you're going to do all the work. You know, dear Megan Fox, uh, use your likeness and your voice, but you're not playing a famous Megan Fox role. You know, it's not Megan Fox from Turtles or Megan Fox from Transformers. It's Megan Fox is playing a Mortal Kombat character, which I think is cool. I think it's cool to see, you know, NetherRealm continue to do this, bringing actors into the game that still kind of fit the universe and with their facial animations and graphic tech used in those games. When you see someone you know who they are it's not other celebrity likenesses in games sometimes where you're like who who is oh there it is <laughs> i kind of see it but i thought this was fun i mean is it going to change someone's pre-order opinion probably not but i think it's a fun it's a fun uh, announcement yeah it's cool when you get to see uh, we've, we've gotten to the point now where it actually uh, matters right who who <laughs> visually you know we've got to the point technologically where it's like we're not going, oh, are those pixels the right person? And and I got to say, NetherRealm in particular, and this these this game series in particular, uh, where they've gotten to the point now where it looks like people wearing makeup, you know, these digital uh, models look so good. It's not, it's not Nicolas Cage in, uh, what what's the, what's the game he just got put into? Uh, we're just like- Dead by Daylight? Yeah, d- Dead Eyes by Daylight, more like, uh, because- Nicolas Cage does not look uh, as as good as uh, Megan Fox does in in this game, where it really does look cool that she is portraying this character. Um, anyway, Rachel, what uh, what do you think? You were the one before we started recording that were like, and also Jean Claude Van Damme, which I think yes, is yes. is very very cool. That's that's more of like a, a history nod for Mortal Kombat because I mean yeah. they have been trying for like what thirty years now to get Jean Claude Van Damme to be in Mortal Kombat. They couldn't make it happen, but now he's 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 there. He, it's his likeness and his voice. He's a skin for Johnny Cage, so technically he's not in the full release of the game. But yeah. if you get, but you know, I know if you pre-order, you're gonna get that. And you know, he's there. He's doing. They had him do one of the fatalities, which was just so cool. Yeah, but. I mean, with regards to Megan Fox, I, I'm I'm excited for her to do this just because I I like the character. I like Natara, and I am interested to see how she's going to look in a full, uh, you know, the full new release of the game. And yeah, I think they they haven't um, they have had um, I guess you would say sort of actors who do screen work in as well as the 
um, the professional voice actors. I mean, uh, who was it in the last game? They had a couple of different actors who, um, Kelly Who, they brought her in as Devorah. And I'm not even sure they used her face because, I mean, Kelly Who is one of the most beautiful women in the world and Devorah, not so much. <laughs> and um, somebody else I'm probably forgetting, but yeah, they... Um, also, this is just going to sound like a, a strange thing, but I'm actually, I've actually followed all of a lot of the models who provided the facial capture um, for Mortal Kombat. Netherrealm is just really good at marrying the the face and the voice uh, in the character animation, and I think especially when you've already got the face with Megan Fox's face at, and her voice, I think it's a little bit easier, but. Um, they they they're really good at that. So I'm I've got great hopes that this character is going to look really good and sound really good. Yeah, it's it's a pretty wild process if you've seen any of the behind the scenes stuff with NetherRealm. It, it can be, you know, three or more people that that are you know brought to bear for one character. You know, you can have the body, the head, the voice, it can all be different individuals and uh you know not always, but it's cool that it seems that for Megan Fox it is uh it is one individual and she seems to be uh, pretty excited about being part of the game and i think i think we'll see more of this going forward i think it's going to be you know that nicholas cage thing I, I made fun of but it it's kind of neat to try it and i think as the technology improves and as you know video games continue to be mainstream i think you're going to see more of this bleeding over from from one media to another and people are just sort of going to expect uh, you know, the portrayals of these uh, characters to be done by notable actors. I think that, obviously we've seen it years and years. Call of Duty had, you know, Kevin Spacey back in the day. And Far Cry and... Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, uh, Quantum so it's Break. Nothing, it's not entirely new, but I think it's going to be more and more common as it as it continues. And it, it's 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 fun. It's cool. Um, I have I have noticed a little shift in the, direct, in the directing, I would say, that I, I kind of felt, got the feeling that when... Uh, actors when they brought in people who had done uh traditional uh tv and film acting to do voices in video games it felt like a lot of times they would let them get away with phoning it in and they're not letting them get away with that anymore and um not that i'm not that i'm suggesting megan fox would phone it in but i'm saying that if you bring in actors from the bigger medium it no longer feels like they're doing everyone a favor by being yeah, here. It's right. more like Megan Fox is here because she's excited to be a sultry vampire in Mortal Kombat because who wouldn't be excited right. to do something like that? As opposed to, you know, if this were like 15 years ago, then you'd have uh, somebody, I'm not even sure, like, uh, not that I would suggest Angelina Jolie would, fo would phone it in, but I'm saying like, if you got her in to do it, it would, you know, people would say like, oh, Angie's just there for, you know, a paycheck. She's not necessarily going to put in a good performance. Or we'd get the, vo the voice lines that were, it's like featuring the voice of Toby Maguire and Toby didn't even phone it in. They just literally used phoned in voice. Like he had no they option to yeah, do it, you know? It. <laughs> yeah, yeah it lifted it like from other performances. No, you're absolutely right. It, it, and I think it's, it's not even a function of them it's a function of the fact that video games are not as seen as the the lesser than medium as much anymore and i think and, that that's that's yeah. an improvement in just in the hobby in general yeah, yeah and there's also a lot more like i think there's also a lot more uh training for the directors as well on how to direct somebody in that role because part mm. of the problem was always that you get these people in to do the voice work and they don't necessarily know how to do it right like because they're just standing there speaking it's like okay and now you get punched like five times in the stomach and they're like yeah. i don't really know what to do here because i'm not actually i don't have another actor to play off of here right. yeah. so i do think like that this represents also a big a big leap in game voice video game voice direction and production 
Yes. I do. Just, I agree. Just to make I'm, sure I'm not slandering Angelina Jolie no, here because I, she is I, the greatest person ever. <laughs> my my understanding is that she's definitely not. Uh, but nah. that's neither here nor there. Um, I'm just I, uh, <laughs> My story of the week, uh, I think I'm going to go with um, the fact that uh, we got a, uh, another game delay. Uh, and this one I think is interesting. I mean, games are delayed. Everything's delayed, as we've said many, many times on the show. Everything's delayed. Uh, but I, we have talked at length so many times in the run-up to these couple of months that we are in and about to be in, uh, September, October, beginning of November. Uh, they are so jam-packed week after week with these uh, incredibly uh, big titles. And, uh, you know, we kept noting how there was going to be something that's going to fall through the cracks. Something's going to get squeezed. We're going to have the Titanfall 2 effect happen again where... A deserving game is going to just not get enough spotlight on it. And we kept going, why isn't somebody, why Why do these publishers insist on cramming in in the same you know few-week period all of the biggest games of the year? Well, we got a game that blinked, uh, and it's Alone in the Dark. And I, I bring it up um, because I'm kind of pleased that this is happening. Uh, yes, would it have been cool to play uh, another horror game in Spooktober, you know, a Shocktober with your your spooktacular friends. Uh, sure, yes. Is it fun to play the the creepy, scoop, spooky, scary games in the creepy, spooky, scary month? Okay, yeah. But I would actually like to play Alone in the Dark when I have time to play it. Uh, and it sounds like that is exactly what's happening now. Uh, THQ Nordic announced this week that it has been moved to January 16th. 2024 which is going to be a completely empty time for big releases as far as we can tell at this moment uh so i think it's going to get much more spotlight and it's going to move away from alan wake 2 uh they specifically call it out in their press release uh alan wake 2 city skylines 2 and spider-man 2 um are all crammed into just a couple of week period there and alone in the dark is skedaddling uh, and evidently, they also noted in their press release that the developers of Alone in the Dark want to play all those other games. They're like, we want to play those games too. Uh, we want to stop working on this one. Um, so it, I think this is uh, was done with some good humor and um, you know, uh, not taking themselves too seriously. And I think it's going to end up being a very, very good thing for Alone in the Dark in that more streamers, more press more attention in general is going to be shown on this game that I think would get swallowed whole under the Alan Wake, the Lords of the Fallen, the Assassin's Creed Mirage, the Spider-Man 2, all of it that's happening over the next few weeks. Um, Rachel, I'm, I'm wondering why we're not seeing more of this. I understand there are shareholders to be accountable for and quarters to make your, your estimates for and all these things, but Boy, this feels like a smart decision on THQ Nordic's part. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and oh, you, you forgot Super Mario Bros. Wonder. That's also happening right in the middle yes. there. It's like, yes. I hope you guys weren't planning to sleep in the next three months right. or so. You know, yeah. roughly around like when that Avatar game comes out, then we can sleep. Yeah, but I, yeah. 
Yeah, I actually this I find this incredibly refreshing because so many times when, you know, I get the game announcements, uh, I get the game delay announcements and they're like, you know, we want a little bit more time to polish the game and I'm like, you're delaying it by 3 months, honey. Who 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 how much <laughs> polish could you conceivably do that you couldn't have done in the last 5 years? I know that when you get close to release, like that's when like the extra frantic stuff happens, but I've said that, you know, I wish you guys would just be honest and, you know, and they said like I've had people say like, "Well, what would you like them to say?" It's like, well, I mean, they could say we're pushing it to a more favorable financial quarter, but that would be saying the quiet part out loud. <laughs> and THQ Nordic said the quiet part out loud. Yeah. They said we don't want to compete with all these major releases. And I don't blame and I'm like that honesty. I love it. I love it so much because we so rarely so so often they seem to want to obscure that a little bit. And I think part of it was that um, Alan Wake 2 also was pretty pretty upfront about the fact that they didn't want to release because their original release date was the 17th, which was like three days before Spider-Man 2, Super Mario Bros. Wonder. And they said, we don't really want to compete with that, but we still want to come out before Halloween, which I think is good because they're going to get that extra boost from Halloween. They're going to be the big spooky game to play during October. So I think Alan Wake 2 has that juice to be able to make it. I think it's a very case-by-case basis. So to, to answer your question, I think... We would, but I do think on a case-by-case basis, like Ubisoft pushing Assassin's Creed Mirage up as opposed to back, mm-hmm. I think that's more a case of they really need to get a, uh, an, uh, another release out because Skull and Bones still doesn't have a release date. <laughs> right. If we're going to say the quiet part out loud, Skull and Bones doesn't have a release date. They need a major release for this financial quarter. Assassin's Creed Mirage has got to go out. Yeah. And uh, Alan Wake 2, probably also the same thing. It's... it. Maybe it could have been delayed more, but they want the juice from the Halloween release. And THQ Nordic saw all that and they said, hey, Alone in the Dark, let's get you to next year. Where all yeah. you have to compete with is the new Prince of Persia game. <laughs> my my favorite part of this is that they said, we actually want to be alone in the dark. We, ha ha. I, I, I dig it when they can be a little, uh, you know, a, bit, a little self-effacing. I think that's fun. Uh, Christian, you think this uh, gives Alone in the Dark a... Uh, a better opportunity to sell more or missing out on the holiday do you think is you know the people are recovering from their holiday spending in you know second week of january do you think that actually might hurt it i don't think there's a good time to release a video game anymore (laughs) (laughs) christian is in favor of not releasing anything ever I used to think there was a good time to release video games. I also used to think there was a good time to catch up on video games. Um, yeah, that's not going to happen. Uh, there is no good times. Immortals of Avium, what a fun, what a fun game. What a bad time that it came out. And then I think it was when I was talking with Brendan, we like looked at the calendar and it's like, oh, it should have come out in. No, no. Oh, God, no. <laughs> Well, that's yeah. a bad month. And so, yeah, January looks like a, a, a major release light month but probably for good reason you know it's i don't i don't know how you do this but there's i would assume there's data that shows that that's not when you want to get games out because if it was we would all be talking about oh my gosh here comes the january rush of games again you know like every year here come the tent poles um so i i hope it it finds its time to shine even though it wants to be in the dark i i don't know um how much this will help it 
I also question Alan Wake 2's release date and kind of that little bit of a shuffle. I'm very excited for Alan Wake 2. I think it remains my most anticipated game of the year. But to claim that you want to capitalize on that Halloween thing and you come out pretty much on Halloween, it's hard to capitalize on spooky season when it's like, okay, spooky three days. Good luck. <laughs> go, yeah. go, go play it. Um, so I don't know. I, I think what's going to sell a lot of copies of Alone in the Dark is Alone in the Dark being excellent. And that's what it's going to come down to because the first game, uh, the not the first game, yeah, I guess the very, very first Alone in the Dark, we talked about Nintendo being, um, you know, groundbreaking in what it did. Alone in the Dark was genre making in so many ways way back when. Oh, yeah. And, if, and, and then Resident Evil was genre breaking in so many ways when it relaunched. And Capcom has found ways to keep Resident Evil fresh and exciting and, and make those remakes um, worthy successors or worthy remakes of those, even the GameCube uh, first remakes of, of RE1 were transformative in what those games could be. And Capcom continued that with Resident Evil 4 now. And so if Alone in the Dark can do that again, and what they've shown so far seems interesting, but I think that's going to de- you know determine how, how well it sells. Yeah, I think the only thing I disagree with is that being excellent wouldn't necessarily be... Uh, reason to stand out amidst games that I think we all assume are going to be excellent, like Spider-Man 2 and Super Mario Brothers Wonder. No, if and, there's two franchises know, I expect to tank, it's uh, a sequel to one of my favorite <laughs> games of all time and then a sequel to one of the best-selling franchises of all time. I'm pretty sure yeah. neither one of those companies will make a hit. <laughs> I mean, regardless of how good Alan Wake 2 turns out to be, and I think we all expect it to be pretty good, I think there are some sure bets around that time of excellence. <laughs> so I don't necessarily think uh, Alone the Dark being excellent would be enough at that time. And I think they've made the smart choice here. And I understand, I understand that that isn't always even an option for a lot of these companies. Like they don't even have the option to go, let's just push it into another quarter. Um, so, you know, I don't, I don't know how those things work necessarily, but as a layman who's standing outside of it, this feels very smart to me. So we'll see how it pans out for alone in the dark. Well, actually um, in terms of uh, games with, um, I guess stunt casting. I mean, you got Alone in the Dark, David Harbour, yeah, as Edward Carnby, yeah, and even Spider-Man Two, Tony Todd as Venom. That's right. You, I mean, yeah. the fact they got that juice in there. I mean, I they've shown nothing of him in the trailers, which makes me very unhappy. But <laughs> yeah, it's a good point. Yeah, we got it's already happening. Remember how like 15 minutes ago I predicted it was going to happen more? Yeah, I was right. Yeah, take credit. Oh, it's for happening it. because yes. of you. <laughs> <laughs> I got my finger on the pulse of stuff that's already been announced. Anyway, uh, let's get into talking about the games that we have been playing in a segment we call The Playlist. Ooh, what you playing this week? Tell us. Ooh, what you playing this week? Tell us on The Playlist. Well, Rachel, uh, like everyone on the 1,000 Planets... We are all still playing Starfield. Everybody's got their hands on it now. We devoted a lot of time uh, on our show last week to talking about Starfield, and I still think we barely scratched the surface. There's there's so much to dig into with that game, the good and the bad and everything in between. Um, I'm curious what your experience has been with this massive Bethesda release. Well, I think I mentioned when I did the review is that the moment when I realized just how big the game is, is I was in the the map. And, you know, of course, this is one of my few problems with the game is like the amount of times you have to press the back button to get out of the get out of the map. Yeah. But we, I got to the galaxy wide view and I saw like the little few systems I'd been in already. And then I pulled back and back 
and back and then just more and more and more content to discover and i was like level 10 at that point like i had um like i hadn't even like scratching the surface i hadn't even broken the surface yet <laughs> and i was just kind of gawping at the screen for a few minutes like wow holy snickers and it was <laughs> i i was like just overwhelmed like i didn't even like shockers i did not 100 percent the game before i finished the review so it's been mostly going back and finding side content and doing the new game plus stuff yeah um i will say one thing i've noticed in the discourse if you can call it that is that a lot of people are like upset about the fact that a lot of starfield seems to be empty like, mm. a lot of the planets don't necessarily have quests associated with them. They don't necessarily have things for you to discover. I kind of like that. I mean, in my space games, I've it, it seems like that's, a very, that's one of the most realistic parts of the game to me, is that space is largely empty, and not, yeah. every, not every speck of space dust out there is going to have interesting things on it for you to discover. And yeah. I kind of like that. It makes when I do find something feel more special. But I understand that not everyone is going to feel as fulfilled by that as I am. Yeah, that was always the the uh the tricky part for for this premise and I think, you know, Bethesda has been very upfront about that that notion when they bit off this project was hey, most of space is big and empty and if we're going to make an authentic feeling big giant space exploration game, it's going to feel big and empty and we don't usually make games that feel big and empty. We make games that feel big and full. And I think I have been very impressed. Honestly, that was my biggest fear. And I spoke about it a bunch of times on this show in the run-up to the release of this game is I felt like it was going to feel, to be frank, like I often feel playing No Man's Sky or did at launch. Uh, I think there's a lot more to do in that game now. But um, And one of the things I think I might do for next week is really go back and play that game in the, now that the newest patch is coming or has it, is it already out? Is the news patch already out? Either way, I want to go revisit No Man's Sky and really do a one-to-one -one comparison in my brain. But anyway, the, the, one of the reasons I didn't play that game uh, more when it launched was it did feel like I would go to a place, there'd be some interesting stuff, but there just wasn't any reason for me to be there. And I was very much afraid that Starfield was going to feel that way. And I think they have done an amazing job in threading that needle of creating a vast you know, galaxy universe wide amount of space and also having it feel like there's a tons of stuff to do and B when I'm even on a barren planet, I'm still kind of, my curiosity is still tickled. And I think for me, that has always been the thing I love most about Bethesda games is that when I follow my curiosity in a Bethesda game, I'm almost always rewarded. And that's the joy to me. And I feel like even here, when I'm on some barren planet on the middle of nowhere that I just went to because it was, I was curious, it looked interesting. Uh, oh, there's something on the horizon. My little scanner is picking up a node of interest. Oh, I'll go to it. And something is there. It may be, maybe not much of a something, but I've spent hours getting into firefights at abandoned mining colonies that have nothing to do with anything, but it was just kind of fun. And I got into it and I'm jetpacking around shooting guys and using all kinds of cool stuff to, to, uh, to defeat this nothing little node and then walking around and doing the thing I do in all Bethesda games, looking in every box and locker and crate and finding all of the useless junk that I can't carry because it encumbrances is me. Anyway. Yeah, 
Oh, I, I, I wanted to bring this up as well, because um, I didn't get a chance to really talk about it in my review. One thing I really liked about this compared to other Bethesda RPGs is it feels like you're actually playing a role. Like, with with all Bethesda RPGs, like Skyrim, Fallout, etc., when they, they present you with a bunch of, like, skills, trees you can upgrade so that... Um, but of course you end up feeling like you can take all the quest lines you want to and it ends up feeling more it's a very power fantasy kind of an rpg not necessarily a classic rpg an rpg in the classic sense of the word what i liked about this is that you can actually give your character a backstory you can give your character like you know a place that they came from you know stuff that happened to them before which was something that was really missing for me in skyrim was you were just a you were a cypher who just woke up on a cart one day with the two most with the three most wanted people in skyrim sitting next to you and there's no indication that you had any kind of a life up until that point so i i like that they gave you the option to give your character a life before the game you know some stuff that happened to them you can even have parents right which is by the way your parents are cool in this game but (laughs) so that was something that i definitely and you know they kind of did that with fallout 4 but the problem with to me with fallout 4 was that they gave you the backstory at the expense of kind of the the story story it's like the backstory was so it overshadowed the main story to such a degree that it kind of like messed with your screw around time Mm. in the game to me it's like it kind of there was a dissonance between who you were and what you were doing in the game not 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 in starfield which i like it feels like that rectified a problem i didn't even realize i had with bethesda rpgs you're you're speaking christian's language (laughs) christian are we connecting here (laughs) yeah yeah yes indeed he's been his bugaboo for quite a while (laughs) um tell me about uh the experience that you had playing through it um did you feel that you were drawn into uh, experiences that weren't, you know, quest related? Did you feel like the exploration element was uh, enticing and exciting? How how was existing inside Starfield for you? I mean, it's kind of a it's it's hard to say because one of the things that I mean, when I was playing it for review, I did kind of have to like steam yeah. past some side some side quest stuff, which is. You know, I, I try to mention it in the review, just that sometimes when you're playing for review, you have a limited amount of time before the embargo goes up. Right. So it's it's hard sometimes to be able to give yourself the freedom with giant RPGs, be able to open yourself up to the experience as fully as you would if, you know, I just picked it up day one at launch. Right. But I, I did think so, for sure. I mean, I, you know, I did the, you know, the RPG thing. I walked past a guard and he said, hey, if you go down, if you go down to the, to the slums, be careful. We're having some power outages down there. And I was just, and that, you know, spiraled into a three hour long quest where I went down and like found like a whole crime ring that was running down in the slums. And even though, you know, as, as, as much as I like the emptiness of Starfield on a macro level, I do think that there, there, there are there is a fun element of discoverability on the micro level. Yeah, I agree. It has been um, very fun to follow my curiosity. I keep saying that over and over, but I I really do believe that's, it's just an amazing thing to be like, oh, what's over here? Oh, what's over there? Oh, what's that? And to always feel like there was a reward to that process that I just, I mean, maybe it's not a big reward, but it's time well spent. And I feel like, that isn't always the case with big, huge games, um, and they do it better than anybody else. I, I, I believe. The only one I had a problem with was when your companions wanted to 
start a quest. It would always be like, "Hey, Barrett wants to talk to you," or "Sarah <laughs> wants to talk to you." Especially we're if they were in with the me. Middle at the of a I was like, Barrett. I was like, "Leave me alone! Not now!" <laughs> that <laughs> was the only one that was shooting at us, and you're like, "You know about my dad." <laughs> <laughs> I, yes, that was the only part of it that kind of felt really inorganic to me, which yeah. sounds, which doesn't sound like it would be that big of a deal. But I remember um, I, I had just gone to Aquila City the first time, touchdown. Sam and I were, you know, we were going to the city. We're trying to do this tense hostage negotiation right when we walk into the city, and then all of a sudden I see Barrett wants to speak to you, and I'm like, did he send me an email? What's going on here? <laughs> He's sitting back in the spaceship, just going, man, you know what? I'd really like to have a conversation right it's now. It's like, I really want to tell you about my dead husband. It's like, Barrett, I would love to hear all about this. Not right now, friend. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Christian, you've been playing a bunch more Starfield this week as well. Uh, has your opinion changed, morphed, improved? Tell me about it. I still very much like this game. I think the more I play it, the more enamored I am by the universe that Bethesda has created. The supporting cast and characters are becoming more likable, and I'm learning their quirks more and their personalities. They all very much have, I think, pretty strong um, RPG or tabletop style personalities where it's not, you know, 20 hours in, like, oh, that's who this person is. People definitely flag, like... I like cake. Oh, you're the cake person. Okay, yeah, I'm going to know you're the cake person. But there's nuance to them that's fun that I've seen develop as I spent more time in the game. I think I saw this randomly on Reddit. Like The user, I think, was like Catharsis23 or something. And it was in some Starfield thread that I ended up down some deep hole because I couldn't sleep. And they, they phrased it as um, Starfield isn't an exploration game. It's a questing game. And that's okay. And that really hit home for me because at least the way I'm playing Starfield, I am not doing that same level of exploring that would take place in other Bethesda games where I am going from forest to fire castle and along like, you know, walking or on a horse or whatever. And on my way, I see these other things that pull my attention because that whole traversal process is one long process and in starfield i'm doing a lot more fast traveling especially as my first playthrough of the game you know if i go back to i know it's not an rpg per se but spider-man or horizon and i'm trying to grind out the fun remaining quests that i have then it's fast travel all day every day but as i'm playing the game for my first playthrough i typically am experiencing that world and in starfield I'm not experiencing that world as much because I think part of it is I need to leave planets, you know, for quests I'm on. It's not go find the thieves down by the well and that's the quest I'm on. And then along the way, I find a river of lava and I want to go explore that river of lava. It's go find the thieves who live on this moon on the outside of this planetary system. And on my way there, it's going to be the cold black vacuum of space. <laughs> you know, like I'm literally grav jumping there and I'm like, oh, we're at the moon. Let's go get these folks. And sometimes there's something else interesting on the moon, but nothing during the speed of light. You know, I haven't been sucked out of my, my light speed travel to be like, ooh, look at this uh, field of lava. And I think you said something interesting last week, Jeff, that hit home for me for this, again, random Reddit comment that hit me harder than it should have at 2 a.m. Of Starfield throws a lot of quests at you in passing almost. And I think more so than a lot of other big RPGs where you, you'll land in a city and you know, as Rachel mentioned, you'll overhear something here or someone will say something there and those will show up 
as quests, as listed quests even for you, if you want to then go and explore them, all this other stuff that you can do. And I think a big part of that is it is a, a questing game, and a lot of the exploration can happen in and around those quests as you poke at the edges, but not necessarily on the main through line, at least on how I'm playing the game. And I think it's because of the way I'm fast traveling. And then my, my last kind of thought of it, as you all were talking, I agree, vast emptiness of space. And I think Bethesda did a good job messaging that. But that does feel a little bit like a PR messaging to me, because our space, Rachel, Jeff, and Christian space is vast and empty because we only have one planet we live on. Starfield space is not vast and empty. They've inhabited moons in the worst part of the galaxy. You know, like, they've shown that this version of humanity has spread out and lived everywhere and has grab jump ability. So I, I don't necessarily believe that all of their planets would be uninhabited. I feel like we would have spread out and inhabited all of them. Well, but I also understand how hard of a game that is to make. <laughs> I mean, I think... I think the- I don't. I don't necessarily agree with that. I think you know, there's so there's a thousand planets in this game. You know, like we're not going to be on a thousand planets, but we are though. Um, we're on like the moon. On some like, I, you go to. I, I guess that's true. But every system I've explored, there's someone on some part of it. There's a base. There's a thing. We've well, that's been there. what's so cool is because you know um, Rachel is wearing her Mass Effect T-shirt right now, and I've definitely thought many many times about Mass Effect while playing this because. You know, in Mass Effect, you go to a planet, and it's like that one place on the planet. It's like, really? Was there just the one place on the planet to go? That's <laughs> you know, just the one place? That's a whole planet and just one – it's like one <laughs> tavern, you know, and on Earth. It's like that's all that Earth is really notable for is that that In-N-Out burger on Fifth Avenue. You know, whatever not, wrong, <laughs> not wrong. Not <laughs> wrong. Well, like, yeah. Fair. Yeah. And, and so I, I in, in that – sense i think that starfield does an extraordinary job of there's always more stuff on the planet you know you're always there's all it may not be the most interesting stuff but it is stuff and i think that's i don't know there's something about that that makes it all feel more authentic to me um anyway uh there's so much more to talk about with this game and it's hard to talk about it without spoilers and maybe we'll do a spoiler chat at some point christian but i'm curious uh rachel you you know you have done a number of as many of us have uh, a number of these uh these big games recently and i'm wondering how you think starfield uh, fits in specifically in comparison to baldur's gate 3 i know you're a tabletop dnd player and mm-hmm. uh baldur's gate 3 is is very dnd it's one of the things i love about that game and you know they, these games came out so close to one another i can't help but <laughs> compare them day as, and date on as, console right wasn't it like yeah, playstation 5s it, and <laughs> and you know yeah. they are both massive sort of generational role-playing games that have taken mm-hmm. many many years to make and are vast and dense and have all kinds of nooks and crannies and interesting things to do in them but they go about doing those accomplishing that feat very differently and i'm wondering from your perspective I don't necessarily need you to rank them, although you're welcome to, but I I wonder what just sort of your experience playing them back to back was like. It's like, well, first of all, I'm so tired. (laughs) Jeff, Christian, I'm so tired. 
fair. No, I had Thank to play. Thank you for being here. We yet. appreciate your time. We value your time. Thank you so much. <laughs> no, it's because I had to because uh, I played Baldur's Gate for myself. I wasn't playing it for review or anything. But then I had to play Starfield for review, and you know you've limited time to review it, so I had to pull some all nighters uh, to get as much material as I could. But well, going back to what I said about Bethesda RPGs being more power fantasy RPGs and Baldur's, in Baldur's Gate is not a game where you can necessarily live a power fantasy. I mean, yes, you can save scum, for example, to improve your roles, but you're not going to be all things to all people in Baldur's Gate. You you right. have a specific story in Baldur's Gate 3 that is yours. I mean, yes, you, I mean, it will be similar to other people's playthroughs. For example, like, did I, you know, well, you know what, I'm not going to spoil the end game, but, um, you know, did I play a paladin? Did I play a warlock? Right. But in, you know, as always in, uh, you know, Bethesda RPGs, you're, you can be, you can access all the content at once. So, you know, you right. want to be a, like, if you go to Skyrim, you want to be a member of the Thieves Guild, the Dark Brotherhood, the Companions, the, 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 yep. the every guild possible you want to be fain of every single hold you can be it's a power fantasy and uh, same with fallout you want to be um the leader of uh the the you know oh gosh i'm blanking uh brotherhood of steel for right. example you can be that you um Baldur's gate 3 is more about the role-playing aspect of the rpg and i do appreciate that starfield is more role-playing than other bethesda rpgs but it's still it's still broader in scope. It still offers more, you know, adventure per se than whereas Baldur's Gate is like much much closer to the actual tabletop experience. Yeah. I think that's such an astute point that that in Baldur's Gate failure is part of the experience, right? Like failing, and, and that's true with Dungeons and Dragons and any tabletop game where you're re relying purely on a dice roll. Uh, you are just probability says you will fail sometimes. And that's part of the joy of playing those games is seeing how failure affects your story. And I, I think that's such an astute point to, to point out that that's not really a part of the Bethesda role-playing experience. Um, you know, you, you are not expected to, to fail at things. You can't, I mean, obviously failure is, is there, but I don't think that's expected as part of the storytelling experience, right? That's right, a, exactly. that's an end result that you have to deal with for not doing something well or whatever. Uh, I, I, I was just gonna say, if if we do get it to a table time segment, I do want to tell you guys a funny story that just happened to me a couple weeks ago in a D and D game that I think will give you a little bit of a laugh. Tell me right now. I now? we got okay. time. Hit me right now. I love it. Okay. Um, just for the failure thing. Um, so in a D and D game that my husband is DMing, um. I'm playing the our group of adventurers are fugitives because we were falsely accused of killing a princess like you do and uh we're trying to escape the law and um a care and we were just in this small town when a character who I'm basically going to call Azamar Captain America <laughs> Himbo Azamar Captain America flies in and uh he's a local hero but he's also a powerful legal figure so we're trying to avoid him at all costs and we kind of like slip in with the crowd that are like surging forward to speak to him and get his autograph and we're slipping through the crowd you know staking our way along and we have to make a strength check and my 19 year old college student wizard <laughs> of course fails the strength check she gets pushed up by the crowd as by the way as 
Captain America Asimar is like actively telling people, yes, we're looking for a young Yuan-Ti woman. Said young Yuan-Ti woman gets pushed up to him by the crowd with her spellbook in front of her face trying to cover herself. And he looks over at her, takes one look at her, reaches out, plucks the spellbook out of her hand, opens it, signs it, hands it back to her, and moves on to the next person. And I looked at my husband and I said, did we seriously just have a Last Crusade moment? <laughs> I was like, right. is that what happened? When I, that was fantastic. not what I was expecting to happen when I failed the strength check, but he said the fact that I was trying to like hide was the was the factor there that 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 was that was what changed the thing because he didn't actually see my face clearly he just saw somebody was like presenting him with something he could sign amazing i love it that's the kind of thing that is makes tabletop tabletop i hope and that I comes think, back uh, to bite you though you try to cast probably. a spell later and your husband's like no you can't read that spell it's signed yeah. uh, captain america <laughs> exactly <laughs> signed right over the important bit yeah it's like fire ball what what is that <laughs> Yeah, I think, uh, and I think that um, Baldur's Gate 3 does a really fantastic job of, of creating situations akin to that. You know, it, it, yes, it's still a video exactly. game, but it, it does an amazing job of facilitating those things that I think previously were the domain exclusively of tabletop experiences. And video games have done a really poor job of, of doing that before Baldur's Gate 3. And I, I'm constantly shocked in playing that game how much they managed to jam pack in that feels authentic to the tabletop experience. And, you know, and that isn't to say that's a failing on Starfield's part per se, because it is not what they're attempting, right? They're, they're not even right. trying to do that. They're, they're giving you a different experience as you've enumerated, I think very eloquently um, that power fantasy is, is what's happening. And I got to say, I really enjoy that. I am yeah, somebody. Everybody that, needs that. Yes. Well, I love the fact that I know that joining the, you know, space police isn't going to make it impossible for me to join the space outlaws. Right. I love the fact that in a, in a Bethesda game, I'm never going to uh, choose my way into losing out on other content. And that's not the case with Baldur's Gate. I no, no. full on have missed huge, I've missed entire characters in my playthrough of Baldur's Gate. I, that's just unavailable to me because I did one thing that I didn't even realize was a big deal. Uh, and yep. that's, yep. there's, those I think are huge, huge differences between those games. And you're right to point that out. I mean, the, again, I don't necessarily think either one is better than the other. Right. In fact, I would I would say they're both equally equally great at what they set out to do. I mean, I might prefer the role playing aspects in Baldur's Gate three more, but that doesn't mean that I don't sometimes just want to hey, let's go hop in a spaceship and let's go kill some space pirates. Right. Yeah, Christian, are you finding? You know, we've talked so many times on the show about your, uh, you know, your inability to to get lost in the story of of Fallout four, for example, because you know they asked you to go find your missing son and then there's all these other stuff to do. And you're like, well, but my son, it seems very important. Um, are, are you finding the sort of role-playing element of Starfield to be more attractive? Are you able to, you know, go down the rabbit hole of these faction quests and stuff like that? Or are you, you kind of sticking to the main line? Well, I think the beauty of Starfield for where I am in my playthrough right now is that it doesn't force a lot of that stuff on you. And I think because the main quest line also allows for that 
exploration. At no point, again, for where I am, and I have not rolled credits on the main quest, but there isn't really this point of you can't work with them because they'll undo everything we've done kind of like tension between the two. I mean, my characters had dialogue moments earlier in the game that I feel like would very much go along with one faction or another, even before I've met those factions, like what type of character am I? And so I'm very much able to role play. I think I mentioned it last week. I'm kind of a Han Solo-esque, but even in it more for the money. You know, Han Solo had a heart of gold. I want my heart to be full of gold um, (laughs) is the different approach that I'm kind of mentally taking when given the option to pursue that path. And so I feel like I've been allowed to play that role more so. I'm not seeking out to do all of the faction side quests right now because that doesn't seem like what my character, what Harmony would do in these moments. But I think it's it's telling to how they've plotted out the main quest to allow for that exploration or that side questing to happen without feeling like it's pulling away from this ticking clock, this time bomb that's otherwise going to go off if I don't do it right then or there. There have been some main quests where, you know, Barrett does want to talk to me and it does sound very important that I do feel like, yeah, I'm going to go do this now versus, you know, go dance at the nightclub for two more days to figure out what's happening with the whatever it is, whatever was happening with their alcohol was being diluted or whatever. I was like, no, I'm not going to do that right now because this is important. But I feel like that is still me role-playing, whereas what you described as my inability for Fallout 4, I would argue is more poor storytelling. <laughs> and I and Starfield does not suffer from that, in my opinion. Uh, in your playthrough, Rachel, were you, um, were you faced with decisions that you wrestled with? Because I feel like with Baldur's Gate 3, that has happened far more frequently where I feel like, oh man, what am I going to do in this situation? Uh, and, and I think in, in, in my favorite role-playing games of all time, um, Dragon Age, I think, is a great example of a, of a series that does this very, very well, where there's no clear-cut good or bad decision. It's, it's you know, somebody's going to get screwed either way, and I got to figure out which way I'm going to do it. I think Baldur's Gate has done that pretty well. And I think, in my experience, Starfield uh, does not put me in that kind of a predicament as, as frequently. But what was your experience? No, yeah, I, I, I agree. Yeah, Baldur's Gate 3 is once again, hues more closely to like the classic RPG sense of, you know, like there's multiple ways you can do this and none of them are necessarily going to get you all of what you want. And I mean, I would argue like one of the greatest uh, decisions that you make is in the first Mass Effect game, Caden or Ashley. It's like that, that that was to me like the most gut wrenching part of the entire series was suddenly like being faced with like, you you make choices that affect the entire galaxy, but like these are your people. Right. It's like suddenly, and every, the entire game was building up to you making that choice. You just didn't realize. And yeah, in I've never seen that. Actually, now that I think about it, the only time that Skyrim ever tried to force you to make a decision, which was in the quest line where um, the blades tell you, "Okay, we're not going to work with you if you don't kill Parthenax." Mm. Sorry, I'm spoiling spoiling the twelve year old Skyrim. Um, <laughs> but yeah, they. 12 oh god it's even is it even older 12 yes (laughs) i think oh god how old am i um anyway the only time they ever tried to force you to do that that was one of the first things that people modded out because people didn't want to make that decision in skyrim and i think it's kind of the same with starfield i mean i don't think i've had to make that a decision like that i can't recall anything or at least nothing that was that that hurt me that much well i definitely there's one moment in the main story where you 
either stay in a place or go to another place. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're like, you have to, bad things are happening in both places. Which one are you going to do? Uh, that one in, in Starfield is, uh, uh, it was intense for me. Um, but I'm not entirely certain it would have played out wildly differently. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't want to say more for fear of spoiling folks, but there's definitely a big moment in the main story quest where I was like, oh, what do I do? Um, so I thought that was pretty cool, but it doesn't happen nearly as frequently as, as in some other games. I, I will mention again here, it doesn't do any of the other role-playing stuff, and I've only played through part of uh, Episode 2 now, but the new Telltale game, Expanse, is only those decisions, which is such mm-hmm. a fascinating... Yeah. You know, it still is role-playing, but a very different right. style of thing. I don't pick what planet I go to. I don't pick any of this other stuff, but it really feels like every you know two-hour game has eight to 12 of those. None of these feel good. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, there's so much we could talk about with Starfield, but I know there's uh, another game on your playlist, Rachel. So what, what else have you been playing? Um, I have played and finished um, the remake of Sherlock Holmes The Awakened from Frogwares. Yeah, this came out uh, a couple months ago. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, I've been a little bit. I've been a little bit busy. Oh um, no, no, I'm not saying it for any other reason. Just, just clarifying for folks. Um, yes. Tell me about it. Okay, so um, point and click adventure games, I will say, have they've definitely had eras for for sure. And I think Sherlock Holmes, uh, Frogwares Sherlock Holmes series, kind of fell into the sort of post siberia dark ages i don't know if you guys ever played oh siberia. yeah siberia siberia oh, yes so I love, many hours into that game i love that game so much but it was yeah. very much a product of its time like and 2002 so, 2003 somewhere around there yeah. i had the jewel case somewhere around here but i have like the old school <laughs> like cd with the little with the guidebook and everything i played um, that i remember vividly i played that at my girlfriend's house at the time anyway but I was yes. just going down memory lane. Uh, yes, no, it's okay. Really cool games. Yeah. Those yeah. So games. Frogwares uh, made their entire – the first wave of their Sherlock Holmes games in that sort of I, – I, I guess Dark Age would be the, the term because it was like something that did not really go very noticed by everyone. It was a sort of underground scene. And mm-hmm. The Awakened was their first uh, attempt to sort of bring other elements besides just Sherlock Holmes stories into the Sherlock Holmes – mythos and they were bringing in lovecraft in this case which i love it i love the like the combination of like the victorian gothic with the you know with the lovecraftian horror and but the problem is the original game did suffer from like a lack of power you know for lack of a better term like there's there's not really a whole lot of like it's very difficult for a game to be spooky when it's held back so much graphically Mm -hmm. and i felt like this was their attempt to really go deep into the horror the remake was and i like the remake i think its only problem is that it's still kind of suctioned to the sherlock holmes chapter one way of storytelling it's just it's two different versions of sherlock holmes um like if you're familiar with the the screen versions of holmes it's jeremy brett versus benedict cumberbatch Mm. and i like jeremy brett better that's the only problem like i i love the actor who does holmes in this version it's just a question of portraying him as deeply mentally unwell but i will say that works better in a lovecraftian horror story <laughs> than it does in sherlock sure. holmes chapter one where he's running around a mediterranean island being like oh the death of my mother haunts me so <laughs> i'm like Grow up, man. Come on. You've, got, you've literally got your imaginary friend standing next to you. At least in this case, it is actually Watson who is with him. 
So I, I, I was really excited about it. And I will say I can't review, I feel it is inappropriate to review this considering Frogwares made this in the middle of an actual war. Wow, yeah. They were a Ukrainian point. development studio. So, yeah. I mean, I don't want to get political here, but like the the circumstances under which they developed this are so extraordinary that I feel like yeah. I, I, I just want to compliment them, even if there are aspects of the game I don't like. It's like, because no matter what I didn't like, there's a part of me that's like, yeah, but what they yeah. went through to make this game and get it to me is like, it's like, it's, it's beyond even what most developers do. Yeah. An achievement, an achievement in and of itself. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's interesting, but you thought you, you thought it was an interesting game and a worthwhile experience. Sherlock Holmes, the awakened remake. Definitely. The only part of it that was a little bit weird for me is that we bring in like elements of Victorian Gothic and Southern Gothic, Lovecraftian horror. We don't actually go to New England. (laughs) The actual place where Lovecraft country is and we don't actually go there. Interesting. (laughs) Which was a little bit weird. But again, it's mostly a Sherlock Holmes story, not a Lovecraft story. So I, again, I, I understand why we're focusing more on the Victorian Gothic aspects of it. Very cool. There you go. Christian Spicer, what about you? You got uh, something else on your playlist? One other quick hit as an OG Sega kid and big Dreamcast fan and all of the weird, quirky stuff Sega has done over the years. We talked about Nintendo, you know, always being a pioneer. I think Sega was very much a pioneer alongside them and sometimes even further ahead in some respects, bringing internet home console games to folks um they are not the same company they used to be but on apple arcade there is also a switch version it's slightly different but on apple arcade is somebody amigo party to go which is fascinating i talk about apple arcade some on this show not enough i think i've mentioned before how it is kind of you know my netflix of games uh i know netflix also exists on phones but i love seeing the new apple arcade releases i'm an apple one subscriber so i get apple tv apple music Apple Arcade all bundled into one price. I don't know if I would subscribe to Apple Arcade by itself. I don't know if there's enough value there for me as a uh, the way I play my games. I'm not a huge phone. That's not where I look to consume my games. But I love seeing the new releases, and I love seeing when something new and exciting comes out. And this game is fascinating to me. I mean, Samba de Amigo is such a... Quirky is not the right word, but I mean, the era of Space Channel 5, Donkey Konga, you know, when, yeah. when rhythm games were all style, you know, as much as anything else, and was very much a, you're using the maracas in the arcade or when they bring things home and you have the waggle. And this version of it on Apple Arcade, there's no waggle. It actually tells you in the tutorial, don't shake your phone. Like, don't move your phone around. That is dangerous. You might (laughs) drop it or something like that. It's like, that's not... Stop. We know you might (laughs) have your phone and want to do this. That's not how you play this game. Please stop. (laughs) It is very much um, more reminiscent of Elite Beat Agents, which was the Nintendo... I love that game. It's such a fantastic game. And it was originally, I think, on the Nintendo DS. And so you were tapping on the touchscreen to the beat. So Party to Go is very much still a rhythm game, but it is on your phone and you are tapping as uh, the beat circles get dots fill into circles as they move and as you tap on them. And what I think is fascinating about it is it's it's still a, it's a three structures on each side. So three circles on each side of your screen, six in total that these balls will go into that you will touch to get on the beat. 
And then you have poses where, again, it's like, don't actually do the pose, but it's still the on-screen graphic of like, you know, a character doing a Saturday Night Fever and you touch where their top hand and you touch where their bottom hand is on, on the screen. You don't actually do the pose. And it's like, wiggle, but you just slide your finger on a, on a predetermined mm. route. But it's it's fascinating, I think, as a rhythm game that is kind of following this Elite Beat Agents approach of touching on the screen. And we've seen Rock Band came out, I think, on 3DS. I think we've certainly had other touch-based rhythm games. But what I find really interesting about Someday Amigo is that it is a rhythm game that I think is great on the phone for the, the changes they've made to it. But I think held back by how I look to play my phone games, <laughs> I get stupid competitive in rhythm games and I have to put my phone down because I'm playing with all my fingers, you know, like I'm, I'm playing sure. the piano basically. So I haven't found a way to hold it, you know, and, and do that stuff. I need like the full dexterity. I put it on a, I put it on an iPad stand so I could have it at the right height. <laughs> It's really All stupid. the things it tells you to stop, it doesn't tell you to stop doing that. No, it, tell, it says good stop, job, you, sir. Please. No, it says good job. You got an A. Pat on your back, buddy. Uh, <laughs> and it's got incredible licensed music in it. You know, a full yeah. range of of songs from cheesy pop hits to you know more uh, Latin influenced music to modern hits. And Again, how I play my mobile games, I usually am not playing with headphones on or sound blasting, but this game is a rhythm game and the songs are so good that I find myself like waiting for pickup at school, like with my phone on my dashboard, like blaring, <laughs> you know, shake your bonbon or whatever it is. <laughs> that so... weird Spicer guy, he, uh, he's sitting in his car again. It's so silly. And the best part, Super bon bon. the best, the best. He's taking best... the elevator to the mezzanine. I don't understand it. <laughs> I'm like, it's on Apple Arcade. You already have it. Um, <laughs> you already the, have it. The, the best part about this version of the game, Samba Amigo Party to Go, which is different than the, the new Switch one or whatever that one's called, is this has a, a campaign, a narrative campaign. And Jeff, you talked about, you know, my hangups with Fallout 4 and its narrative. The... <laughs> I think this is the first time Sonic Amigos had a narrative campaign, and it has cutscenes and everything, and it's something about like bringing the beat back to the world. Like only sure, you, of course, only yeah. you can bring the beat back from the sure. darkness. And Samba and uh, real Samba stands are going to get mad at me. There, there's like the fairy, the the voluptuous fairy that's in the games. <laughs> like spoiler, like they're romantic. It's so. It's. I mean, it is. It, Wait, so is, I, I was about to, I was about to introduce this to my uh, my seven year old. Is this not oh, appropriate no. to the? It's appropriate. No, it's appropriate. Oh. It's appropriate. <laughs> also, you can just play rhythm mode. You don't have to play uh, the story mode. You can just he, go through I, and pick. I, your after songs. you went on about uh, Splintered Fate, a TMNT game, I had Jack download that. He's all about that game now. He cannot get enough of it. It's super bite. It's like super super bite sized Hades. It's a really uh, that turtles game. And Samba de yeah. Amigo, it's fantastic. Like it is, it is so silly and so irreverent. And it, again, because it's Apple Arcade, there aren't microtransactions and all of that other the trappings in yeah. a lot of mobile games. And it feels like Dreamcast era Sega back again. And they made a really fun game. As long as you go into it knowing that it is a touch based rhythm game and not shaking your actual bonbon. Um, I, I, I was, it's, just a, it's a delight. Like, no, it's not going to be on my five favorites into the year, but I find myself playing it more than I thought I would. It's it's, it's great. And the life, it's real music. Anyway, 
Somebody Amigo Party to Go. It's on Apple Arcade, and all right. I like it more than I should. <laughs> Alongside all my, uh, you know, AAA game gaming, I'm I'm trying to maintain my uh, indie game of the week, and and this one is not not a roguelite. So stepping a little bit outside my norm, uh, but it is an interesting game uh, that has been in. Uh, in early access for quite a while now. It just came out in a 1.0 release. This is a game called, I, I think it's pronounced like Abris, Abris, something like that. It's A-B-R-I-S-S, Abris, built to destroy, built to destroy. This is uh, a, a, a new entrant into a, a subgenre that I get a lot of joy out of, and that is the subgenre of uh, blow stuff up into itty bitty bits. <laughs> I enjoy games that let you blow stuff up into itty bitty bits. And I got to tell you, Abris's itty bitty bits are pretty awesome. Uh, if, if, you know, 90% of my, <laughs> of my, of my, uh, uh, estimation of these games is how itty bitty are the bits and how many of itty bitty bits are there. And I got to say, Abris excels in that uh, in, in that regard. This is a game about building up stuff. You get bits and pieces. There's a gold little platform on each level uh, upon which you can place pieces, and you have a finite number of pieces. And this is a puzzle game where you have to create something out of those pieces that will destroy certain <laughs> little parts of the map. So you're you're in this kind of top-down isometric view, this really pretty visually, I think, very impressive uh, view of kind of an abstraction. It's like girders and structures that are all sort of um, abstracted, but they they look very highly detailed. You know, there's like you know, boxes and and moving parts and kind of uh, it's very um, very futuristic and kind of techno looking and. Um, and there's you know little glowy bits in the level, and you have to uh, activate your contraption that you build and have that destroy the glowy bits. And you start out just with like not toppling things over into them, uh, and the, but you uh, eventually, as the levels progress, you get more and more sophisticated objects of destruction. You get you know you get things that twirl, you get things that, you got lasers, you get all kinds of things that explode, all kinds of cool stuff. And every time you start the, you trigger the uh, the Rube Goldberg machine, uh, it results in just massive explosions and uh, all kinds of things flying everywhere. And the physics are creating a chain reaction to blow up all this and that. And your lasers are shooting through here and your spinny thing is twirling there. And it is very satisfying. It is my, well, you know, one of my particular kinks is is just watching the chaos and I, I find it very very satisfying and very fun and this game uh i think delivers on it very very well my the downside of this game it seems to me and i'm certainly not an expert level player of these games the puzzle is how do you use the pieces to do the thing and the best of these games allow for your creativity to come up with an outside-of-the-box solution that uses the pieces in a very odd way that still accomplishes the goal. And my estimation, or at least it, it seemed to me in playing Abris, that most of the time there's one solution and or there is the solution. 
And that is a bit uh, unfortunate because I wish that there, it felt like there was myriad ways to do this and I'm using my creativity to come up with them. And instead, it really does feel like a puzzle to unlock the way that you can accomplish the goal. Um, but it's a very minor complaint because still the coming up with the solution is satisfying and fun and interesting. And I think ultimately what you go to these games for is what I've said, is that it is very beautiful when all of the explosions are happening and all of the things are destructing and your stuff is falling on other things and exploding. And it's just wonderful. So I think visually, you know, check out this game if you're curious, if you like those kinds of games, because I think you'll be drawn to it visually. I think it does. The, the only other thing is that it does have a, a camera mode and like you can record, you know, cool explosions and stuff, but you can't really like tilt the camera and dig into it, it in, a, in a way that I wish you could. But the isometric perspective is still neat. It, it it blows up real good, and I had a great time playing through a bris. All right, that's it for this episode of DLC. We do have parting gifts coming up, so stick around for those. But Rachel Kayser, thank you for being here. It's been so much fun having you on the show. Thank you so much. I I really enjoyed being on it. Yeah, that's I, wonderful. I, I I appreciate that you have now like also like shortened the degrees of separation between me and some of the other people in the industry that I love. Oh, that's that's a great thing to hear as well. I'd be able well, to say we've we've all been on DLC. <laughs> that's what happens when you've been around long enough. You know, everybody comes through the door at one point. But we it, that's really a lovely thing to say. Um, tell folks where they can keep up with you and all the things that you do online. Uh, yes, so I have a, a, a link tree around here somewhere, but just to keep it simple, um, a lot of my writing you can find via my Twitter or X. Let's just call it Twitter. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not about I'm not about that weird abbreviation, yeah. but uh, on Twitter, which is at Rachel Kaser, uh, R A C H E L K A S E R. Um, you can also, if you're if you are on the TikTok, you can also find me on there. It's at Grace of Athena. But if you search my name, Rachel Kaser, you should still find me. I do a daily uh, news blast on TikTok, which is just what happened in video games today. I do that every week weekday. So yeah, and also if you are interested in my non-video game writing, um, I have a um, I have a uh, Stay Golden Sunday going up shortly, uh, which is my weekly Golden Girls recap, and <laughs> then I also. Every Monday, I have Masonry Monday, which is a recap of an episode of Perry Mason. Wow, that's that's awesome! I love it. That's amazing. <laughs> so, a cool. little bit of a little bit of a niche side interest, but you know, I I I enjoy it. It's something that's given me. It's something that gave me a lot of happiness during COVID. Was starting to write this stuff. That's great. I love it. Christian Spicer, what about you? What do you got going on this week? Well, the final episode of season two of Feeling This came out on Friday. If folks haven't checked that out yet over on our Patreon, it's at any level. And it's a long, um, I don't want to say meandering, I think that has negative connotations, but exploratory conversation of playing a game wrong, air quote wrong, and how that can impact feel. And Alex Solman and I kind of dive into and pick at the edges and around this idea of, you know, developers tune a game to be played a certain way. Or as you mentioned for a brisk, there's a possible solution. Well, what if you find another way to do it? (laughs) You know, how do you ensure that that is still a fun and delightful experience 
when it is not the quote-unquote intended way to play? And, and is there or should there be an intended way to play? So that's how we wrapped up season two of Feeling This, so that and all of the other episodes from season two and season one are available over at uh, patreon.com slash dlcpod. And then this show that you're listening to right here is on threads as DLC Hype Train with uh, fun nonsense and occasional news happening there. Um, So it's a fun place to hang out. It's low-key, it's chill, it's easy breezy, and uh, you should come hang out with us. Yeah. I need to to get on threads. That would be my first uh, port of call when I do. Threads isn't quite there yet all the way. They're just now rolling out search. It's also owned by a not great billionaire, but I think it's owned by a less not great billionaire, if that makes sense, um, <laughs> in terms of how social media goes. It's it's getting better every day in terms of they're rolling out new features, but it still feels not feature complete, but in some ways that makes it feel more exciting because you're like, ooh, what is this? Oh, I could post a video from the web? How exciting. <laughs> <laughs> still a little wild west <laughs> you can also follow me on all those places at jeff canada um i have other podcasts for you to check out as well if you're so inclined including the film cast which is about movies and tv shows i do a comedy science show called we have concerns a sports show called the fan controlled show and uh the uh, dlc book club so uh, all those fun things you can find uh by searching wherever you get podcasts actually the the book club is on my YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash Kanata Jeff. All right, let's wrap the show up now with our parting gifts. Hey, give us a suggestion of what to do this week. Give us a parting gift. This is parting gift. Rachel, do you have something to help people get through their week? Uh, yes, I do. Um, I thought this might be a little bit of an unusual offer, but um, I've really gotten into this cookbook which um, is from mm-hmm. a popular, I, he's really blown up online influencer, B. Dylan Hollis. He just released his Baking Yesteryear cookbook, which is a uh, collection of recipes that he has tried from older cookbooks, like from the 1900s through like the 80s as well. And oh. uh, just recipes that don't sound like they should work, but do. I have a long history of like cooking ephemera, of like with cooking ephemera all the way back to, I don't know if anyone knows uh, knows the name James Lilacs, Well, when he did uh, a website called the gallery of regrettable food, which is about (laughs) um, the failed versions of these recipes. So when I found out that this was sort of blowing up on TikTok, uh, well, Dylan was uh, the sort of like old school cooking uh, adventures. I was like, okay, I got to be part of this. And I got the cookbook and I've been trying out a couple of the recipes and they really do work. It's, they don't feel like they should work. It makes, it really does feel kind of adventuresome, which is great for me because I'm not really a good cook. So if I'm show, showing my showing my stripes a little bit here, but I'm not really a great cook and I'm not I'm not always interested in trying new things because it doesn't necessarily feel great, like great fun to me. But this this is fun. I've en- I've enjoyed uh, being part of this. Very cool. What a great suggestion. I've never heard of this, but this sounds awesome. Uh, kind of reminds me of my buddy uh, Josh McCuga's old show on the History Channel called Eating History. Uh, anyway, uh, this is called Baking Yesteryear. Uh, by uh, Dylan Hollis. What a, B. What Dylan an awesome... Hollis. Excuse me. B. Dylan Hollis. Yeah. Um, very cool. Very, very cool. Christian Spicer, what about you? What's your parting gift? I am showing up late to The Lincoln Lawyer on Netflix, which was a, a book and then an old Matthew McConaughey movie and now a Netflix show that ha- has multiple seasons. 
my wife and I are, are working our way through season one. And as we were deciding kind of what to pick, I, I Googled it to get a review of the show. And one of my favorite reviews was, uh, you know, procedurals always have a star and they have that star have a thing. This, the protagonist of a Lincoln lawyer's thing is he owns a car. <laughs> and that's it. Like that's, you know, otherwise it's just any other procedural, but he have his own a car. And I was like, I'm in. Um, I like the old Matthew McConaughey movie. I enjoyed the book. It, it's, uh, I, there might be more than one. I've only read one of them. Um, and the Netflix show is the perfect, the leads play their parts well, but the show is so cheesy and pulpy in weird ways. And this season episode, sorry, season one, episodes one and two, there's someone who's shooting free throws. And I don't know why in production this happened, but the basketball is CG, like obviously <laughs> CG, like the arc is wrong. I don't know at what point that actor that was shooting free throws, they were just like, you know, Trevor, just stop. We got this in post. And so like, there's weird quirks like that, but the main story is compelling and fun enough. But it's also as a former, I used to be an attorney for people who don't know. And this show is the beautiful world of unrealism where it's like this guy. <laughs> it sounds like you just said you're an attorney for people who who don't know. You're just like, you boys, I'm an attorney. What? You're representing me? Yes. Surprise. I know I mean, you didn't know. You didn't know, but it's amazing. I'm your attorney. <laughs> you say that. No spoilers. That's kind of the premise of season one of The Lincoln Lawyer. So it's not too far. Okay. Wow. But, I mean, it's just so silly. It's so silly even for the the stretch of what, like, legal procedurals are. This is David E. Kelly who has, you know, done a million of them. And it's just the idea. It's, like, been four days and this guy has one of the largest cases ever, you know, that he's ever had. It's ever been done. It's a celebrity case he's trying to manage. But also along those four days, he's gone to court seven other times and got 15 other people off and – also had like a romantic date with his daughter to like reconnect on a marriage that's failed. And I'm like, dude, you would be locked in a war room right now doing doc review to prepare, but it's just fun. Right. Again. So it's, it's <laughs> like, uh, it, it's like watching Grey's anatomy. If you were a physician and you're just like, there's no way can't stop watching. Um, <laughs> so that's the Lincoln lawyer. It's on Netflix and it's, uh, it's dumb fun. That's Christian, great. we need to talk about Perry Mason, you and me, at some yeah. point. Oh, yeah, all day. Are you talking day. about the new Perry Mason? Like the new, the new old school Perry Mason. Old school Perry Mason. Because I know like they just rebooted Perry it Mason. like recently. They did. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that's a whole separate thing. Okay. But, uh, no, I love yeah. that you're doing the old one. Yeah. That's great. Um, my, I'm also going to recommend, as my parting gift, a uh, something that I'm late to the party on uh, Righteous Gemstones on Max, the one to watch for HBO is hilarious and i had been avoiding this show forever because i could not be less interested in mega churches like i just don't care and the premise did not interest me at all even though it's full of people i like uh you know john goodman and danny mcbride and all these folks it's like yeah i I, i'm not gonna watch that i i thought it was gonna be this kind of I don't know. I did not realize how ridiculous and hilarious it is. It, ridiculous. I, those are synonyms, but I mean ridiculous in that it is, it's goofy. It's goofy, but also very astute and funny and biting. Man, I'm having a blast with this show. I'm only on season one. I'm almost at the, I'm on the last episode of season one right now. I know there's three seasons, but I avoided it. If you're like me and you'd been avoiding it, don't. It's very funny. I mean, obviously very adult show, but is, 
I am laughing my patoot off. And it, I mean, it's Danny McBride, uh, Danny McBride's sense of humor. Uh, it is very, uh, is very focused on, uh, you know, undermining them and, and pointing out their hypocrisies. And it's, it's just really funny. So anyway, I recommend it. It's called Righteous Gemstones. It's on Max, the one to watch for HBO. We also got a listener suggested parting gift. This was sent to us at dlcfeedback at gmail.com. It comes from Chris. Chris says, hey guys, I want to send in a game recommendation that seems to have been missed. With all the huge releases this year, it is unsurprising, but I think you would really enjoy the time, or I, I think you would really enjoy the time spent with it. It's called Tren, T-R-E-N. It is a game inside of dreams made by Media Molecule. When it was announced that Media Molecule was moving on from supporting dreams, I wasn't too surprised, but still slightly saddened as Dreams is an incredible software platform, giving anyone the ability to make their own game, art, animation, etc. Tren is Media Molecule's last creation in Dreams, and it is great. The player controls a traditional wooden train car toy on wooden train tracks in order to complete challenges. While simple in concept, the physics make the wooden train cars act like real wooden trains, flopping and falling off the tracks. The environment... Music and sound effects are all so evocative that it feels like you're playing with a real toy set. Just being in the world feels so pleasant. It may start off easy and simple. The tracks get more and more challenging. If you're looking for a salve for any of the large time-consuming games of this year or the stress of normal life, Tren is there for some simple, soothing fun. Thank you for everything you do. I look forward to every Monday and Wednesday episode as they help me get through my week. Keep up the great work humankind be both thanks chris thanks for the little dungeon run shout out at the end as well uh if you'd like to have i'm I'm, honestly i i love the fact that dreams is still like this massive platform that i have barely experienced at all it's just wild how much must be there at this point that i just am not even aware of but it's cool that uh there are so many cool um worthwhile experiences if you'd like to have your parting gift read on our show, send it to us. DLCfeedback at gmail.com is where you send it. All right, that's going to do it for this episode of DLC. Thanks again to Rachel Kayser and Christian Spicer for hanging out with me. Thanks to our musical contributors, Patrick L., Sean Madigan, and Zero Star for the bumpers. Our theme song was composed by White Cube, which is T. Ryan Arnold and Jason Sherry. We have to have uh, our hugest thanks to our patrons who make this show possible at patreon.com slash dlcpod. Our top tier patrons, our hype train patrons, get their names read out at the end of every show, which Christian's going to do right now. In space, they might not be able to hear you scream, but at the end of these episodes, they can hear me thank our hype train patrons, which is what I'm going to do right now. It'd be very funny if it was just silence. Oh, no, I'm actually in space. You can't hear it. You can't hear It's just like, oh, this is one small thanks for DLC podcast, but one giant thanks for keeping the show possible kind. And just, you know, space space it up. No? No, don't space it up. Okay. Yick, thank you, Zachary White, Nate, Jenny, Scott Hughes, Jimmy Radcliffe, Mitchell Ness, Jeff Luxack, Matt Bradley, Victor Venezuela, Cheesy Bob, Hank Patton, Rob Rixman, Riley Knox, Kyle Starr, Michael S., Relentless Rex, Curtis from Louisville, Comedian Aaron Trahan, Sheru Ken, Scott Lambert, 
Joe DeFrank, Stephen T. Seifert, Tyler Buckwild Brode, Jason Novak, Octavian Ratziu, Christian Bravery, Jad, Peter Olberg, Michael Buck, Mike Lombardo, Tyler Wigert, Josh Peake, Nick Strauss-Klein, Michael Stadler, Jackson, Travis, Soren Silk, Spiceman Silencer, Albert Verheldedios, Jonathan, Spiceman Forever Schlepplefer, Stu Goss, Kevin Brazel, Ben, Dan Palmino, Malcolm King, Mark Gowland, Jonathan Putney, Will with 1L Harris, Chris Zacharias, Jonathan Talbert, Scooby Diesel, Adam Demby, Sasan, Dan Flanagan, Anthony Goulas, Andy Joyce, John Sisko, David Epp, Hyperboy66, Brian Yordan, Kevin Ede, Rob, Wonder Rob Dominguez, Dwayne T. Robinson. Space Thanks. All right. That's it for this episode. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time. Until then, think about what you put out into the world. Make it a better place.